tangent, to break off suddenly from a line or train of thought and pursue another course. Webster's. DC Comics Tangent Universe Podcast. I'm one of your two hosts, Michael Bradley, and with me is your other host, Sean Engel. Hello, everyone. How's it going? This episode, we are diving back into... See what I did there? Diving. (laughs) I got that one. We are diving back into the Tangent Universe with a look at a book that is, yet again, different from the previous issues, but one that still ties in with the other books we've covered on the show so far, albeit in a much more casual way than the others. Uh, this episode, we are going to take a look at the next book in the, in the tangent line with Sea Devils number one. Uh, and I don't want to jump too far ahead, but given what little back and forth we've had so far about the issue, I I think we were both a little bit let down. But hopefully, we'll be able to put together a entertaining podcast for you anyway. Yeah, I don't think that it's necessarily the fact that we're let down should let anyone believe that this is a bad story. Right. It's entertaining. It's enjoyable. But compared to the, the excellence that's come before, not only with the Green Lantern, with the Atom, all of the stuff that's come before, even even the Gary Frank Flash story was fun in a different way. This is just – it's not quite as good. But I think once we get into it and get to discuss a little bit about you know what the characters are referenced for, and I think what Kurt Busiek was going with the story and the look of the art, I think it'll I think it might be a little bit more entertaining. Yeah, and those first two issues that we covered in the first two episodes set the bar very very high. Oh, so def- there's going to be you know lower quality material. Mm-hmm. You can't you can't always knock it out of the park. This yeah. is you know this is a good uh, you know this is a good double. Yeah. Uh, before, we, <laughs> before we get into the book itself, though, we're going to talk about you folks because we've got feedback. Uh, we've, we've actually got a lot of feedback to go through. We're going to read some of this episode and, and save some for the next episode. But if we don't read your email or, or comment this time, don't you know take it as a personal slight. We do appreciate all the comments that come in. We just we like to spread it out a little bit. So mm-hmm. first up is an email from Professor Allen. And I should have actually pulled it up. Here we go. Sean and Michael, Michael and Sean. I'm really enjoying the new Tangent podcast. At this point in my collecting, I was totally out of comics, not paying attention to what was going on in DC, and therefore totally missed this comics line. So I am coming into this clean and thoroughly enjoying your takes on this new-to-me comic book universe. I love the idea of new comics lines. I read lots of Milestone. I read lots of New Universe. 
I read some of the Ultimates line. The concept always works for me, although the execution is not always the best. It sounds so far that the Tangent Universe is one I would love to have been reading as it was coming out. Do you think that the New 52 would have been more cohesive if it had attempted a 100% blank page reboot with only some familiar names than the mixed up part reboot, part not reboot mishmash that we got? By the way, thanks for playing the short box showcase promo. The favor will be returned in the near future. Professor Allen. Hmm. Um, about the question about the new 52, I've always subscribed to the fact that if they wanted to do a from the beginning, get people on at the at the bottom, at the ground floor level, then yes, they should have done just a, a reboot, a complete and total reboot. But they haven't they kind of follow the lines of crisis in crisis. They changed a lot of things, especially with the Superman book and the wonder woman book, but they relatively kept green lantern and Batman going forward with generally the same continuity. Uh, as you covered in green lanterns life, there was a lot of things that, you know, uh, didn't really change with the green lantern books, right? The same thing happened with the new 52. And I think it would have, if they would have given uh, if they wanted to go all out, they should have gone all out. This sort of soft reboot that doesn't really uh, specifically give a starting point for everyone kind of makes it confusing to not only to new readers but old readers who are trying to obsessively determine you know what fits into where. If Green Lantern. You know, actually experience Blackest Night and how Jordan was Parallax. Well, how does that work in this new universe? If you know, I hate to keep coming up with the t- five-year timeline, but if the five-year timeline was around. How does Batman have you know four different Robins? It's it's one of those things I think probably would have worked better. Yeah, I I don't know. I think there are pros and cons to both approaches. You know, we've seen the the cons to the pros and cons to the approach they took but at, at the other hand if they did do a 100% you know reboot you risk losing some readers that maybe are following a certain storyline or, or a certain character that isn't involved in the new reboot and in fact we, we kind of saw that you know because they they got rid of Wally West and there were a lot of people up in arms about that so mm-hmm. well and I think I think that's the thing that kind of hindered them because they did kind of do that especially again like I said with the Batman and the Green Lantern storylines which had ongoing things with Grant Morrison and Jeff Johns writing Mm -hmm. the book so two of the top writers in or two of the most popular writers in comics at this point mm -hmm. so they they definitely wanted to make sure that they kept readers on with with those stories continuing so they couldn't just do a full reboot and restart those otherwise you know they would have lost those readers so it's it's a difficult line to straddle, and I, I don't envy DC or, or Marvel you know, trying to have to keep comics fresh and new, right. yet also maintain the readership that they have by the, continuing these storylines that you know, older readers have loved. So right. it's, it's, a difficult, it's a difficult thing to – difficult line to straddle. Yeah, and just to bring it back to the, what Professor Allen had said earlier in the email comparing it to the Milestone or New Universe or the Ultimates line – you know, the milestone in the universe lines were, I guess, closer to the tangent universe in that they were uh, a completely new universe with new characters. The Ultimates line had the advantage of being able to create a new 
world with Spider-Man and the Avengers and the Hulk and Fantastic Four, but yet not eliminate the the classic stuff that people love because it was just a parallel a parallel universe. Mm-hmm. So, well, and see, I'm afraid. DC was worried after you know the crisis on Infinite Earths of going back to the whole multiple Earths thing, but mm. that seems you know from what I've from what I've read with Grant Morrison's sort of multiversity thing, that's kind of what they're working towards. So I I don't know. <laughs> uh, like I said, I, it, they're they're in a very unenviable position, and it's 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 got to be difficult for them to try and gain new readers and keep older readers, and you know. Not only not only work in the comics medium, but now in you know television and movies. There's so many things going on that it's you're never really going to be able to please everyone. Unfortunately. No, no. But uh, thanks, Professor Allen, for writing in. We yes. really appreciate that. We got another email. This time it's from Gene Hendricks. He's uh, the host of the Hammer Strikes podcast over at Two True Freaks, and he also hosts the Quantum Cast, which is a show about Quasar. The uh, galactic superhero from Marvel Comics and he writes in with the uh, subject The Metal Men. He says, another great episode, guys. I, like both of you, have never been much for war comics, but this sounds like an interesting story. Less about war and more about intrigue. So either I haven't been reading the right war comics or this just gave me the right hook to drag me in. Like the Adam book and all the Amalgam books that I've read, it's disappointing that these were not ongoing series. Oh, I'll completely cop to that. That that's one of the things you'll probably hear from us quite a bit in this show. Mm. It sounds like there was enough story there for at least a limited series, but all we get are these one-shots. Of course, I'm a sucker for alternate takes on comics, such as Elseworlds and What If, so, this, so these sound right up my alley. In addition, it seems that Tangent has one of my favorite things in comics, a connected universe that you don't have to read everything for. The Atom and Metal Men occur in the same universe, with details crossing over, but if you only read one or the other, you wouldn't feel like you were completely lost. Add to that the subtle cues in the art that both of you have pointed out, and I'm really sorry I missed these the first time around. Thanks for bringing this universe to light for many of us, Gene. Thanks, Gene. And I think that's really one of the strongest, one of the many strongest points of the, of the Tangent books is, you know, they, they are connected, but they stand alone as well. Mm-hmm. It, it, like like we've said before, you can read each of these individually and get a nice contained story in them. But if you do compile them with the rest of the uh, books, you see things crossing over. You see certain characters get mentioned in certain books and get developed even further. Uh, to spoil ahead a little bit, I've read or I kind of read through the Nightwing book that we'll be covering eventually. Okay. And there's a lot of stuff that goes on in that that uh, relates to the metal man and characters in that and stuff. So it's, it's, but uh, on its own, it's also a good story by itself. So, uh, and I wish, I wish there could be more books like this, you know, the, the more books where you don't have to know exactly what's going on in say Aquaman to be able to understand what's going on in the justice league, right. or you don't have to read every Green Lantern title to know what's going on in this story. If you only want to read one, you can read that one and have a good contained story in it. Uh, I, I, again, it's the unenviable task of these comic book, these comic book uh, businesses. Publishers. Yeah, the publishers to, to make sure that they're getting stuff sold. So I guess they have kind of a reason 
to have these crossovers to make people buy more books. Unfortunately, sometimes it's it sort of spreads the story out and it makes it not as interesting of a read. So the lesson we're learning here is that we don't want to publish comic books. Exactly. Okay. Yeah, we're we're more than happy to to criticize and you know poke fun at people who do comic publish comic books, but we're not going to do it ourselves. We'll, we'll just stick to the backseat driving. That's that's good. Exactly. For us. That's what we're good at. Uh, next up, we got an email from a listener uh, who not so much feedback on the show, but wanted to know where he could listen to the show. Um, he was asking that he he said he tried to download the first two episodes, but could not find a download link like I include with the Superman and Batman podcast. And that is completely my fault because when I was putting together the show notes, I didn't include I, I included the iTunes link, uh, the RSS link, but I did not include a direct link to the MP3 file for people who, you know, just wanted to download that episode and didn't want to subscribe. So I have went back and I have amended those two uh, show posts and then the – what episode are we on? Five? We're on episode five, yeah. <laughs> Episodes three and four had the links, and then this one will also have the direct link. So, you know, we, we encourage you to subscribe, but if you are uh, not wanting to do that, you can just download the episode individually. Mm-hmm. We know not everyone uses iTunes or has an iPod or iPhone to, to listen to their podcast by. Some people listen, you know, directly from the website. Some people download it to a different podcatcher or a different RSS feed and listen to it on their, on their Zune. Michael Bailey. Um, Do they still make Zunes? Uh, Michael still owns his. I'm okay. Uh, but um, yeah, if, if you do listen through iTunes or if you do download through iTunes, we would really appreciate if you could give us uh, iTunes reviews. But I appreciate you fixing this, you know, fixing the, uh, the links to all that, Michael. Especially, you know, and I've got to say also, I appreciate you basically doing a bunch of the stuff for the show. I just sort of come here like Andrew Leyland on the Fantastic Cast <laughs> and just jammer on. Eh, so. It's all right. <laughs> and we also have a couple of email comments from uh, the website. And you can get to that website at greatcrypton.com. This first email comment comes from Jadeen. And it uh, says at the beginning, lots of intense screaming. So I guess there's some excitement here. You're not going to replicate that intense screaming? Uh, do you really want me to? Good point. I'm so happy to find a couple of people <laughs> talking about Tangent. It's one of my favorite DC experiments slash publishing, publishing lines of all time, but alas, obscure enough that there's not much fan material or discussions about it, unlike, say, Amalgam. Hmm, I didn't know there was a bunch of Amalgam podcasts I, out I there. I didn't either. Wow, that's surprising. So I'm super pleased to see a podcast, of all things, about Tangent. I'm also really glad to see you guys having an open mind about it. Currently halfway through the episode, not many people do, especially with Tangent, and I'm enjoying it. Lots of thanks. Uh, lesser sign, three. Oh, I guess that's a heart. I'm sorry. I don't speak emoji. <laughs> um, well, Jadine, thank you very much for running in. Uh, yeah, uh, like I said, when I initially saw the Tangent Universe advertisements, I was kind of not really turned off, but just confused by it. I didn't know exactly what it was. And I think we commented on the first episode how Michael kind of brought me into this. And so far, I don't care what anyone else says. I have been really enjoying this. So I I have no problem talking about this. I've really enjoyed it. I really love it. And I hope that you're going to be enjoying our coverage of it. I think maybe the – and I've been meaning to go back and, and do quote-unquote research about this. But I think maybe the house ads and the uh, – 
what little publicity there was for the books maybe gave kind of a false impression about about what the books were going to be because like when you saw the house ad you took it as some sort of like uh uh, manga or, or anime influenced storytelling and that's not at all what it is and I mm-hmm. wonder if other people didn't have that same sort of uh, presupposition about it I could I could definitely see that yeah uh, I was relatively confused about the uh, you know from the advertisement so you know again going back to publishing maybe it wasn't <laughs> maybe it wasn't the best advertising uh, the adver- best advertising for the comic yeah. so there you go. But, but I agree with Jadine. You know, not enough people are giving these books attention, which was part of the reason we decided to do this podcast. So, really glad that that people are enjoying it, and hope they'll keep enjoying it. Mm-hmm. And we got one last bit of feedback. It's another website comment from Jadine, and it reads: There are a bunch of foreshadowing references in both the Atom and Metal Men. In fact, I'd argue that the first four comics in Volume One trade paperback, maybe three set up what will generally be important details along the way in the rest of the tangent line, as you guys have been noticing. Then again, there are one or two other additional comics who set up even more important hints, but they come later. Metal Man especially gives us hints about a character who will appear in the tangent group comic, Lori Lamaris' background who will pop up later, and... shoot, I forgot. Most likely Nightwing, as we'll see the rest of the Metal Men in greater detail, just dispersed in different titles, and a character from the unit who will appear completely different who will who will appear completely different physically later too, and will be obsessed with a gir- certain girl of light, as we are already already talked about. Mm-hmm. Gravedigger's pin should should show a certain organization's logo. I don't have the volume on hand, but it might not be drawn out either. More foreshadowing. We will also find out what happened to Nixon later. There are lots of laters in the tangent, but it makes it so good. I did love the comment about President Schwartz's cigarette and how it relates to the story itself, beginning and ending it. I hadn't noticed that before. That's a really great note. If you've read Sergeant Rock comics since you mentioned him, many tropes there pop up in Metal Men too. Like almost unrealistic close combat explosions. Though in Sergeant Rock, instead of injuries, the characters would die in the aftermath, if I'm remembering right. This is going to be great. I'm excited to see what impact Green Lantern will have. And I hope you mention another comic like that, like it in DC, at least with a similar idea. Well, I hope we kind of commented uh, what we thought uh, was in DC that kind of related to the, to the Green Lantern comic. I kind of figured it was somewhat like the character of death from... Uh, death the high cost of living but i don't know i don't know specifically who she might be talking about um trying to think there was uh maybe a, a phantom straight i think someone else pointed out maybe a phantom stranger vibe yeah that's i i'm not sure sh- oh i think that's uh did gene did gene point that out or I am think i thinking so. yeah. okay which we haven't read that email yet, but okay. uh, stay tuned until next episode, and you'll hear that comment. Mm-hmm. But yeah, the the Phantom Stranger, the old House of Mystery uh, anthology books, you know, those those House of Secrets, the, those are previous DC titles that had kind of a similar vein. So, yep. But thank you very much for the comments, Jadine. Uh, we really do appreciate all the feedback, and we got to close up the mailbag for now. But we'll be sure to read some more next time. So. Keep writing in, folks. Mm-hmm. 
Well, if you're ready to go ahead and jump right into this, we're going to be covering Sea Devils. You ready I, for this, Michael? I am as ready as I'm going to be. All right. Well, that's that's a good place to be then. <laughs> sea Devils number one was cover dated December 1997 and released on October 1st, 1997, like the rest of the books. Again, the cover price was $295 US and $425 Canada, and the title was Devils and the Deep. The writer was Kurt Busiek. The penciler was Vince Giarno. I think I'm pronouncing that right. Inker was Tom Palmer. Letter was Clem Roberts, colorist Jason Wright. Assistant editor Frank Berrios. Associate editor Dana Curtin. And editor Eddie Briganza. In the Gulf of Florida, deep in the darkness of the seafloor, a trench gapes like a mortal wound. Around it, the sea creatures twitch nervously and flee. For deep within, something stirs and begins to move upward. But never mind that, it's time to tune in to Deadliest Catch New Atlantis, where we see Sig and Andy pulling in their nets while all the while complaining about the downswing in the amount that they've been bringing in. However, their conversation is cut short when they see a near-humanoid aquatic creature trapped in their net who begs for help. The fishermen offer up their own brand of help by shooting the sea devil in the chest while dismissing its ability to mock human communication. As the creature seeks back into the murky depths, her body is discovered by other aquatic creatures, who in turn notify the family of the deceased mermaid, who prepare her body for ritual burial in the underwater city of Shilago, formerly Macon, Georgia. Cut to the town hall of Shilago, where the mutated denizens of the city bicker about what to do about the human problem. One of the seawater senators recaps how the nuclear blast that destroyed Florida and Cuba mutated the aquatic life in the area, and now generations later, these sea devils have become less like monsters and more like intelligent beings. But the tribal arguing is put to rest as Ocean Master, the ruler over all denizens of Shilago, tells the assembled that he will ruminate on what has happened and give them his decision in a few days' time. After leaving the feeding fishmen, Ocean Master encounters his son, Redfin, who respects his father's role, but wants to have no part of it when he steps down. And as the youthful Redfin swims away, the trench from the opening tees shows more ominous activity. Meanwhile, in New Atlantis, Rorschach walks along the waterfront, murmuring about bloated dogs or something. Oh, oh wait, no, it's... it's <laughs> Sorry, it's actually Redfin, who has decided to meet some of his finny friends at the Black Pirate, a seedy dockside bar. Despite the protestation of the local sailors, the bartender lets Redfin meet up with his pals in the back. After the introductions of Thresher, a bipedal shark, Grouper, a beer-swilling grouper fish, Angel, a spiky blue angelfish, Moray, and Shrimp... Guess you can guess what kind of sea life they are. Redfin is joined by blonde bombshell J.J. Daly, a curvaceous girl who likes the taste of fish, i.e. Redfin's tongue down her throat. This doesn't sit well with the bar patrons, and Fighty McFightenstein, copyright Andrew Leyland, 2011, all rights observed, breaks out amongst the jets and the sharks, some a bit more literally. But the brawl is busted up by the arrival of a fuzz, forcing the sea devils to exit into the ocean via the floor and JJ to pull diplomatic immunity on the cops. As the sea devils make their way back to Shilago, they run across a giant Kirby monster that arose from the ominous trench seen those few panels ago. Realizing that his father's forces are no match for the monster, Redfin heads to the one man who might be able to save them. Sadly, it is an Aquaman. But Georgia Governor Daly, the father of JJ, 
who is currently bawling his daughter out for her fishy fetish. But all the talks of aquatic love will have to wait as Redfin burst into the governor's office, demanding to have a word with him. The Leviathan is on a direct path to New Atlantis, and the Sea Devils are willing to take it on, so long as Daly provides them with the weaponry he was amassing to use against the Sea Devils if worse came to worse. Begrudgingly, Daly makes an alliance with Redfin and delivers the weapons to his ragtag team. However, once the Sea Devils depart to face the Behemoth, Daly tells his daughter that the alliance is just a ruse and he would never acknowledge helping them. However, the Harlequin hero, known as the Joker, begs to differ as she tosses a doll at the governor, a doll which has a recording of Daly admitting his collusion with the Sea Devils. As the Clown Princess of Goodness swings off, Daly bemoans his horrible luck. Back underwater, Ocean Master and his forces are doing their best to stop the chaotic crustacean, but they're having little effect in slowing it. Luckily, the tide has turned. See what I did there? Yeah, okay. As Redfin and the Sea Devils blast away at the monster with the surface weapons. Unfortunately, the behemoth knocks over a tower in the underwater city, supposedly crushing Redfin and Ocean Master. However, before the troops can swim away, Ocean Master rises from the rubble and rallies them to keep pressing the attack. Ocean Master plans on delivering the gravity bomb to stop the Leviathan, but Thresher takes it from him, claiming that Ocean Master never had any respect for his fallen son. If the plan is to be carried out, it will be to honor Redfin, and it will be done by his friends. And with that, Thresher takes the gravity bomb and swims into the gaping maw of the monster, detonating it and pulling the creature back into the depths where it came from. Crisis averted, Ocean Master unites the tribal factions and honors all of those who were lost. But after the celebration is over, Ocean Master heads to a secluded cave where the injured body of the real Ocean Master lies recovering from his wounds. The hero who united the tribes and secured victory was none other than Redfin. And now it is his duty to be the king that these sea devils need. There we go with uh, Sea Devils number one. Um, Very nice work on the synopsis. Uh, it, like I said, with these longer stories, it takes a bit more telling to get the synopsis. I can't really get it down in a short amount of time. But I think, you know, like we said, overall, this for me has been the book that I enjoyed the least. Mm-hmm. Not meaning that it's a bad story. It's meaning that compared to the ones that we've read before, which were – which were a plus stories in in my opinion this one probably ranks a b 
And I think one of the things that that kind of brought it up for me was doing some research into it. I found there were a lot of Kirby influences in it, not only okay. in the art, but the story as well. Uh, some of the characters were taken from uh, some fourth world uh, type characters, especially uh, I think it was the Deep Star Six or the Deep Six were the characters. Oh, okay. that. So that kind of enhanced it. But overall, meh. Yeah, I was kind of disappointed by this one too. Um, it, it was better than I was expecting, and I'm interested in hearing what you uncovered about the the Kirby connections and stuff. But I, I think this was the weakest of the five we've covered so far. Um, I really didn't care too much for the art. The, the character designs on the Sea Devils are great. I really like those, and and the uh, the penciler, the back matter says he was chosen because he draws great monsters. So the Sea Devils. With you know a couple exceptions that I'll get to in the page by page are are pretty great, but the human characters look stylized and, and kind of weird, and the page layouts and actions they're not bad by any means, but they're just kind of like you said, meh. Um, overall, the art it's it's not terrible, but there's just nothing stand out about it to me. And, and since I really didn't care for the style aside from the sea devils, it just you know, it, it didn't do it for me on the level of the art of the other books that we've looked at. And I kind of felt the same way about the story and the writing. It wasn't bad, but it felt at times that it was very paint-by-the-numbers. And again, we'll get into it more with the page-by-page here in a little bit, but there were a lot of storytelling cliches that were just put into one tale. And I really expect more from Kurt Busiek, who is a phenomenal writer and a phenomenal writer of characters. So, well, again, I think, you know, uh, this is one of the things that that we keep keep harping on in this in this series, that this is another thing that if Kurt Busiek was allowed to continue the storyline and write write more stuff, his ability to create these characters and shade them in and give them more depth would have made this story. And I think this series much more interesting. But unfortunately, maybe it it is just a one shot. Maybe Busiek was kind of limited by that. Yeah. And again, it wasn't poorly written. I've got a lot more positive things to say in the page-by-page. It's just, in an overall sense, not what I've come to expect from the Tangent books or Curb Music. So Same here. So why don't we take a break, and then we'll come back for the actual page-by-page discussion. Sounds good. One man, inspired by the greatest superhero the world has ever known, and yet haunted by his own past, vows to clean up the mess that he inadvertently caused so many years ago. Hi, this is Matthew Apps, and I am the host of a brand new podcast covering John Henry Irons called The Armored Hero Steel, a John Henry Irons podcast. Check it out every month at www thefanofsteel.com and www.supermanpodcastnetwork.com Here at Quarks, customer satisfaction is our primary concern. I'd say we just found our way into a wormhole. I'm Kira Norris. Lieutenant Commander Worf reporting for duty, sir. You're the best crew any captain ever had. This may be the last time we're all together. Will sure to become a leading center of commerce 
and of scientific exploration. And for Starfleet, one of our most important posts. It is quite simply, Commander. The journey you have always been destined to take. Sensors are not functioning. We've lost all contact with the space station. What the hell is happening out there? Shields up. Damage report. Battle stations. I'm Captain Benjamin Sisko. Welcome to Deep Space Nine. Listen to the Prophets, a Deep Space Nine Two True Freaks presentation with Sean Engel and Andrew Lay. And now with 100% more Paul Spataro. And we're back, and we're going to get into the page-by-page about Sea Devils number one. Uh, starting with the cover, you know, I, I, this maybe isn't the strongest cover we've had, but I really like the way that the, the pattern of the background and, and the layout of the figures and the logo all work together to kind of give it motion. And, and it's kind of a whirlpool effect, which really fits the characters, given that they're water-based. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it does have a very... The one thing that I noticed is... it. And I referenced earlier the the Kirby influence. I think a lot of this stuff is very Kirby because if you look at Redfin up here, he does have the very specific Kirby hand, mm-hmm. the outstretched you know fingers splayed apart with his uh, sort of web fingers. Um, I like the I like the design of the logo as well. It's very it's very sixties mod. I think that's kind of cool myself. So yeah, and I. Um like I said earlier, I think the character designs of the Sea Devils are pretty strong in this. So I'm glad that they were able to feature all of them on the cover rather than just, you know, Redfin or Ocean Master because they they really look good as a group because of the colors that were used. There's Redfin, who's red, obviously, and uh, the little shrimp guy who's kind of orange and yellow, and then there's uh, a blue one and a green and yellow and gray, and they, they just really look good as a group. Mm-hmm. And, and they're all distinct enough from the sort of swirly uh, whirlpool background that they kind of pop off the page. And mm-hmm. again, Redfin's, you know, again, the Kirby influence with Redfin gives a nice 3D effect. So I like it. It's, a, it's not the best of covers, but it's least an eye-catching one. Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, my thing on page one, and I think this is where we get into the uh, discussion about the difference between the uh, – creatures and the humans because the humans on this page look just uh, yeah pretty uncomfortable and also i've got to wonder uh you know yes it has been 35 years since the uh whole uh you know third world war and the uh cuban missile crisis and the missiles going off but should people really be fishing off the coast of an area that's been irradiated by a ton of nuclear missile. I mean, we're still we're still kind of concerned about what went on in the Gulf Coast with the whole BP oil spill. But no, we're okay with fishing in irradiated waters where, you know, we know weird mutated creatures live. That's a very good point. Maybe they're just selling the Long John Silvers. That could be it. Hmm. <laughs> oh, I, what are we worried that we're not going to get the lucrative Long John Silvers <laughs> contract for us? I don't think so. <laughs> Uh, there goes our sponsorship deal. Thanks, Sean. <laughs> well, I guess we'll just have to, you know, hope that. Uh, oh, I'm thinking Captain D's. Captain D's. <laughs> Maybe they'll pick us up. Uh, moving on to page two, I, I really like the big panel here with, with the the sea devil is shot and she's sinking through the water, and you see this trail of blood that's kind of floating and expanding upward. It's just a really nice effect, especially with the bubbles and the water, the foam of water that's around her as she plunges back into the water. 
Mm-hmm. I liked it. Uh, yeah, the color the coloring is really good in here. The you know there was a distinct uh, difference between the blue, and I think it's again, it's a bit of the digital coloring, but it doesn't look obtrusive as a lot of the digital cover coloring from this era does. It's right. it's a nice it's a nice it's a nice look. Um, my next thing is on page three, and you know I can accept the fact that from you know radiation that these creatures mutated to be sort of humanoid and all that and that's fine i'm kind of worried about how the fact that they developed you know a sense of ritual for dealing with their dead is that the is that the you know bridge too far the fact that you know they can mutate to humanoid form but they can also determine you know uh burial rituals for their dead that just seems odd for me they've got languages and customs and you know, yeah. So, so, and- so, so again, thirty-five years of radiation. Radiation helps things, kids. Keep that in mind. <laughs> Work for well, Peter Parker. They they actually talked about someplace, whether it was in the story or the back matter. Oh yeah, it's in the back matter because it talks about how um, thirty-four years is a generation and a half for people, but it's at least three times that in fish years. Mm-hmm. Which allows and that was, them to to develop at a much faster rate, and that was one of the things that you know all, that that allowed it to work for me. That I could explain that it explained to me why these things would be this evolved in that short amount of time. Mm-hmm. Because even with radiation affecting them, you know that that does seem a short amount of time until you take into the account that fish have shorter gestation periods than humans would. So right. makes sense. Well. Just to tie it into something that's again popular in the pop culture, you know, there were there were some turtles that were exposed to radiation. And hey, what happened to them? So, yeah, they got they got uh, subdued in a uh, crappy Michael Bay produced movie. Yeah, with oh. Megan Fox. Oh, <laughs> uh, but, uh, on this page too, well, and, and <laughs> on this page, and then back on page two a little bit too. I liked that they let the narration and the art carry the scene. Because I think dialogue would have hurt this. Because instead, we get a very cold but emotionally weighty introduction to this world. Mm-hmm. Um, until you get over to page four, the only dialogue you get from the Sea Devils is the one where she's begging for her life on the opening page. So, your introduction to these characters is a tragedy that you're completely walled off from because you aren't able to interact with the characters via the dialogue, which adds a layer of of sadness to it because you're you're seeing these terrible things happen and and people in pain and you're just you're helpless to do anything about it Mm -hmm. i i agree it's 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 good it's good storytelling and you know again that's one of the things that the tangents books have have done really well is get good storytellers Mm -hmm. to do this busiak is really wonderful at this and by setting it up as sort of a, a, a wordless tragedy that it's only told through the caption boxes it really sells <clears throat> the amount of emotion that they're trying to get through with this. So right. good stuff. My next notes on page four, where they're talking about uh, where the town of Shilago is. And also uh, once again, the Kirby reference Shilago, I believe was one of the characters in the deep six, which was oh. a, a part of the, it was a part of the, uh, I think it was part of the fourth world type stuff. Uh, I don't know whether it was one of the teams on the fourth world, because unfortunately I'm not, that familiar with the uh, the Kirby stuff in the fourth world and all that. So I seem to recall reading the Deep Six at some point, but I am blanking on where it was. Hmm. 
but uh, that's that's what I got in my little bit amount of research here. I also like that, uh, or what I was saying is that the the town of Macon is closer to the shoreline than Atlanta. So it would make sense that if the bomb went off and destroyed a lot of land and supposedly sunk the coast and whatever, that this city would be an underwater city and uh, that, you know, the fish and the coral and the, the reef life would have taken it over. So I, I and you know, now that Atlanta is pretty much a coastal city in New Atlantis, you know, it, the geography works for me here. So Cool. And I just Wikipedia'd it, and the Deep Six – um, according to Wikipedia, they are uh, servants of Darkseid who exist for the sole purpose of combat and terrorism in Darkseid's name. And there are apparently six members, of course. There's Gol, Jafar, Curran, Shaligo, Slig, and Troc. Yeah. So there you yeah, go. that's 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 where they got the got the name for it. So yeah, very good. Again, again, a Kirby reference there. Now, getting back into the issue, though. This we have the credits here on page four and five, and this is the first tangent book that didn't have a uh, credit for Dan Jurgens. And I wonder if that was an oversight or if it was because, as they talk in the back matter, Busick deviated from Jurgens' original concept more than it seems the others have. Hmm. I I really didn't notice that, but yeah, there's there is kind of, there's not really that uh, reference a lot to the metal man. In here, I, I was. We see in the book there's a reference to the Joker, mm-hmm. and uh, there'll probably be a little reference to Nightwing in here. But there is not specifically uh, it, the characters in the Metal Man, which seem to permeate the rest of the books, aren't really touched upon here. So that could be a part of it. Um, page six, we get a little bit of an art change in the flashback sequence, but it's mostly just a kind of black and white coloring. But what I really like though is the second panel where they've uh, integrated the radioactive hazard symbol with the sea life, and it just makes oh, yes. a nice transition from the explosion to the after effects of the mutated sea life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, did, I didn't catch that. I was looking at, the, you know, it, it because, because the panels are four panels that are sort of rectangular uh, going vertically, you don't really get to see the full radioactive symbol, but if it were expanded out, you would see the circle with the circle inside with the triangles going around right. it. So that's, that's really good. That, yeah, that's a really good art framing sequence there. Um, my next note's on page seven. Again, harking back to the Kirby-type art influence. Again, Kirby hands here. Yeah. So... You know, and Ocean Master, you know, and Ocean Master does have a very elaborate, almost Galactus type hat. So <laughs> I love the design on Ocean Master. Mm-hmm. Uh, his, his headpiece is a little reminiscent of the DC Universe version of Ocean Master, but at the same time, he's very much his own character. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's it, again, the, the idea behind the tangent concept was take the names, turn them on their head, and mm-hmm. make new stories. And this does a good job of it. But when you have a name like Ocean Master, there's not a lot of places you can go with that. Kind of like Reverse Flash when you have the Flash, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, also, I just wanted to say a little uh, little bit of trivia. For those of you who didn't know, the original Ocean Master in the DC Universe was created by our favorite writer, Bob Haney. Yay! And he was illustrated by an amazing artist who sadly passed away recently, Nick Cardi. So. Aww. Yeah, I know. Well, I'm sorry to bring it down, but I just had to reference Bob Haney in the story because uh, Bob Haney, Haney's fun. Nothing wrong and, with that. And nothing wrong with Nick Cardi art either. Um, 
page nine is the next. Uh, Same here. Okay. Um, there's a lot of Easter egg like nods on this page. I like how we both totally skipped the uh, generational conflict page. Yeah, well, that's that's typical. Oh, Dad, I don't want to deal with your boring business stuff. You're not my real dad. <laughs> no, they, they couldn't. I'm going to let you die in a tornado. <laughs> Sorry. Oh, Oh, we did. We have to bring Man of Steel into this. I can edit that out if you want. <laughs> no, I don't. That's funny. <laughs> uh, but no, on page nine, I, I love the little Easter eggs that are po- posed here. In fact, uh, exactly. Are you reading my notes? Because I am not. No, I, I'm just saying that you know we've got Easter eggs here. We've got the one person you know kicking the the pulse uh, mm-hmm. bending machine. We've got uh, in that panel up above it, that police officer looks very familiar. I think we'll be getting to uh, look at him. You know, it's just a lot of, uh, again, we've said before that these comics can be read on their own individually, but when you look at them in this, the entire tapestry of the tangent universe, there's so many fun little Easter eggs to find in here. Yeah. And we also get, uh, we see a couple of patrons at the newsstand referencing that print is outmoded, and we get a reference to the Adams debut, which is nice because it helps us align when these stories are all taking place in relation to one another, mm-hmm. which I like. Oh, yeah. Uh, let's see. My next page is on uh, – or my next page. My next uh, comment is on page 10, and mm-hmm. I said, I thought you might like this as the name of the pub Redfin goes to as a reference to a Sheldon Moldoff character mm-hmm. who appeared in Action Comics number 23, the Black Pirate. Yep. Plus on this page, uh, that, that third panel, I, I'm wondering uh, why Tangent Lex Luthor had to make his living <laughs> as a bartender because that is – the, that is definitely a Lex Luthor looking person. Yep. Or the Kingpin. Oh, maybe the Kingpin as well. What I want to know is what what's going on with the Men in Black here in panel four? I don't know. Maybe maybe they're uh, just there to sort of zap the guy, zap the sailor guys, you know, for uh, protecting the aliens. That could be it. That uh, that sailor is one ugly looking dude. That's yeah. not not only ugly physically, but not really well drawn either. So he's got about five teeth. Yeah. Well, uh, you know, uh, meth does that to you, I guess. Uh, uh, I've actually got another note for this page, but it relates better to something a few pages over. So I'm gonna. Okay. Uh, my next note is on pages 11 through 13 where we get introduced to the sea devils themselves. And this is where I want to go kind of geeky and one of my uh, other sort of favorite things. I don't know fish. how w- – no, not fish. <laughs> <laughs> Although I do love me some Captain V's. Come on, Captain V's, sponsor us. Um <laughs> No, uh, actually, these characters really, when I read through this, it, it made me think of something that I from the show Mystery Science Theater 3000. Ah. And I don't know if you'll know what I'm talking about, but there is a movie that they riffed. I think it was either in the third or fourth season called The Beatniks. And all of these characters in this book reminded me of analogs from the movie The Beatniks. There was Redfin, who was like the leader. There was Grouper, who was the beer drinking sort of buddy. There was the antagonistic female, which is a moray. There was Angel, who was the kind of cute female who was, you know, uh, had the hots for the leader as well. There was the goofy little klutz guy in Shrimp. And then there was, you know, the big bruiser who wanted to get in trouble, which is Thresher. So I just, you know, the fact that I can relate it to Mystery Science Theater and 
quick mystery science theater in the show as well. It's just one of the things that kind of made me happy here. Yep. I've never seen that particular movie, but or episode, it, but it's it's a good episode. I enjoyed it. It's Joel, so it's always good. <laughs> um, my comment here, um, I, I said earlier that there were two exceptions to my like of the character designs, and this is actually the first because, not to be uh, crass about it, but the females have breasts, and these are fish that were exposed to radiation and somehow developed mammary glands and breasts, but apparently not nipples. <laughs> and we don't have to linger on it because, I mean, I understand it's done to make the female characters look more feminine, and it happens in other science fiction too, but it's just one of those things that hit me as not making a lot of sense if you thought through it. Yeah, well... But I'm willing yeah. to let it go. I, I, I think it is one of those things that you just have to... It, it's an aesthetic design yeah. in order to determine the you know who is who's feminine and who's not because with the males it really doesn't matter. I mean, you don't need to see bulging, you know, genitalia on the males, which is nice that they didn't include it, but don't need to, don't want to. Uh, but the the males, you know, you see a shark, you see a giant beer slugging grouper fish and you see red friend. Oh, and you also see the little shrimp thing. So they all look I like the little shrimp guy. They they all look you know, akin to what they would as their sea life. So you don't need to define them as male or female by right. giving them overly ample bosoms for right. whatever reason. But it was the nineties. Yeah, yes, it was. So. so you had to have boobs somewhere. Uh, my next notes on page 13, just to mm-hmm. point out that he's drinking blue devil beer. Oh yes. That's a, that's always a nice look. And we'll see these little things every yeah. once in a while, you know, uh, various different, brand placements on uh, various different products <clears throat> for DC characters like this and Blue Devil Beer. I'd drink a Blue Devil Beer. Oh, yeah. There's a great one we'll talk about next episode that made me laugh out loud. Awesome. Um, my next note's on page 14. This is, you know, the the sort of two-thirds uh, splash there. Again, oh, yeah. another Blue Devil uh, Beer shirt. Mm-hmm. But just tons of Kirby references you know uh, and I I don't know if that's just me looking into it but Redfin here looks kind of like Namor to me especially you know with see that especially with the the fins underneath his arms it looks kind of like Namor's black costume if you remember that uh-huh. and his uh the way he's written as well sounds kind of like Namor idiots air sucking dirt dirt backing morons <laughs> I can swim against the ocean's strongest currents, withstand its defense darkness. How can you hope to hold me? Yeah. Yeah, that's that's something Namor would say, I bet. It was a pretty good fight scene. Oh yeah. For the for the art, but and and, and each of the each of the sea devils get their individual abilities to you know, to show off their you know, show off what they can do. Yeah. Um, I thought the this entire sequence here, the starting on page 13 and going over to 15 was it just felt like a very cliched scene about you know racism um <laughs> if if it was if you if you make the sea devils human with black skin and set it in the southern united states in 1960 it would play out exactly the same and you've got redneck bigots and the fight is instigated when they see redfin flirting with jj and the dialogue is uh quote, they can't do that, not with one of our women. And then one of them tries to rape Angel. You know, back on page 10, they yell at the bartender for letting Redfin in, and he's like, 
you know, that anyone is welcome. Oh, but you have to go to the back and, and hurry up so people don't see you. And then later, it's the bartender that calls the cops and, and says the sea devil's attacked. So he's not any less racist. He's just more entrepreneurial about it. And mm. it's just all very paint by the numbers. And, and like I said earlier, I, I expect more from music who's great at writing characters and not cliches. Yeah, it does. It does definitely fall into that. You know, you could transpose this to be any type of um, whether it be racism or any type of bigotry towards people and it would work here. So that is that is kind of disappointing that it does end up end up like that. But I did note, though, on page 14 that the guy, the one guy has a uh, tattoo that looks like an atomic explosion with 1962 below it. And after 9-11, we saw people getting tattoos to remember what happened and, and lives that were lost. So, you know, while I think that this might have been done just as a, as a laugh, looking back, it, it actually rings kind of true. Yeah, it kind of does. Yeah, that, that makes sense. It's a, you know, if you were going to, you know, permanently mark your skin to, you know, pay homage to something, you know, you, you'd, you'd want it to be something that was memorable and something that meant this something to you and right. it, it it makes sense especially a person who was a sailor who uh, worked in the sea who might have even been in the military at the time right. probably done something like that or maybe lost his parents you know he looks mm-hmm. like he could be young-ish mm-hmm. but I really don't have any notes until about page 20 uh, you know we've got the fight yeah, scene yeah um, page 18 I was just going to say I was hoping that her father would turn out to be someone we'd already met, like maybe the Metal Man or someone in the Metal Man or, or someone in Nightwing, but, you know. No, well, well, we'll find out that, you know, there is, again, a connection to Nightwing. Um, again, page 20, that that full page splash, mm-hmm. if that is not, if that's not akin to the, the Kirby monster that was coming out of the ground on that very first issue of Fantastic Four, I'll eat this comic. The I mean, eyes that, bug me. Uh, they are a little, Muppet. they're a little small. Yeah, they do kind of look like that. But 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 otherwise, it's you know, huge mouth, gaping oh, yeah. maw, claws. It it looks really ominous. It but it 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 just feels kind of derivative of Kirby. Which you know, if they're going for that, that's fine. But you know, sometimes only Kirby can do Kirby. Yeah page 22 where we see uh, essentially how JJ got out of uh, being taken away by the police her father is the governor so you know she's basically got diplomatic immunity to do whatever she wants to so good for her Uh, page 24 yep okay page 24 between the brand laboratories mark 3 gravity enhancer and the pulse cannons there's a lot of phlebotinum at work here Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it does kind of, again, harking back to Kirby, it sounds like the kind of stuff that, you know, he would come up as, oh, yes, it's this type of weapon, mm-hmm. you know, that, that Reed Richards has, has discovered, has not discovered, but has invented in his lab. And we, we're going to take that to uh, use against the uh, against this giant creature. So, yeah. Maybe I was just looking at this as as more of a serious read than kind of a fun Kirby romp. Yeah, if I think if you take it more uh, as the aesthetic of Kirby just being kind of out there, mm-hmm. then then it does have a better feel. That because 
initially when I did read through it the first time, I was really down on it. But when I looked into the Kirby influences, and I just uh, I think it also helped that I recently covered a uh, a first issue special comic over on a Back to the Bins where we covered Jack Kirby's Atlas, Ooh. which was just it was just. It was essentially the the initial the first Conan tale with a Kirby strongman, yeah. and it was it was just a heck of a lot of fun. So I've just gone, you know, more to accept Kirby as you know just a, a wild story writer. And if they're trying to ape Kirby here, that's it improved the comic for me. Hmm. Um, my next notes on page twenty five, uh, the first panel here is Redfin and the governor shake hands and. Right there on on Governor Daly's finger is a Nightwing ring. Oh, I missed that. Yep. So there's there's the reference that he's uh, probably on the dole, or he's yeah. you know connected to the Nightwing organization. So yep, a little bit a little bit more. It's not it's not specifically seated here, but you know Nightwing is part of the overarching storyline. So there you go. And it's another member of Nightwing in a very high position of power. Mm-hmm. Especially in a, in a city like New, New Atlantis, which is yeah. this burgeoning new—it's the city of the future. It's essentially the metropolis of you know the Tangent Universe. Mm-hmm. One would think. Well, he, he's the governor of the state. Oh, there you go. So, uh, page twenty-six. My, <laughs> my note for twenty-six was to uh, kind of tear down that we had another duplicitous human character, but now that we've pointed out that he's part of Nightwing, that's not quite as much of a shock. No, I can, I can see that. I, I do like uh, my next notes on the next page where we get our first real close-up look at the Joker. Yes. And, oh, I, I love this character. Yes. I really, really love this character, and I can't wait to get, you know, not not that I don't enjoy this book, but I can't wait to get to the next book where we talk about the Joker. Yeah. But it, she's, just, she's just fun, and she does have that sort of madcap, Insanity that the regular DC universe's Joker has, but she's more of a a hero. Yeah. As she as she you know has recorded the duplicitous you know daily in what he's doing and gives him a little sort of uh oh what would you call it uh the doll that you put pins in voodoo doll voodoo doll exactly and give that to uh, daily with the recording so yeah she. I love that they've reinterpreted the Joker as kind of basically a uh, troublemaking force for good. Mm-hmm. And, and like you, I'm I'm really looking forward to covering her book next episode. She seems like a smart j- – just from this scene alone, she seems like a, a smart and witty character that would be really, really fun. Mm-hmm. After that, I really don't have any notes until uh, page 34. Um, I had a quick note on 29 that it was a nice panel of the Sea Devils charging into action. Mm-hmm. And over on 31, uh, it was a nice moment with Ocean Master emerging from the rubble and rallying the Sea Devils. But again, it was pretty obvious that this was going to turn out to be Redfin and that his father was either dead or, or seriously wounded. Yeah. But no. Um, my note on 34 was we get another Kirby trope uh, with uh, Thresher jumping into the maw of the creature with a bomb strapped to his back, which is kind of. I uh, didn't. Uh, I th- again. I think that was much like the Fantastic Four number four, where Ben jumped into the mouth of the uh, the sort of creature that the Submariner had called up from deep. So, okay. uh, unfortunately, you know, Thresher didn't make it out while uh, Ben did in the Fantastic Four. Obviously, so good thing there. I do. 
you know, I will comment on that panel. You know, we see as Thresher is about to let the bomb explode, there's just disembodied members of uh, the sea life around there. That yeah. gives a little uh, little darkness there, but it gives you know sort of the the gravity of what's going on. That not you know people are dying in this, I, and it's not it's not gratuitous, but it does carry the effect that yeah, this thing has taken lives. Right. Yeah, it's not graphic at all. Um, my last note is on 37 and 38. Okay. Which I guess is the end of the story. Yep. But just to say that it ends on a very similar note to the Adam, with our main protagonist taking on his father's mantle and accepting his destiny to be a hero or a leader, but still in many ways needing to become his own man, so to speak, and, and make a difference and make or make uh, reparations for the misdeeds of their fathers. Mm-hmm. I, I liked it that they kept it sort of that even though the the people didn't know about Ocean Master, you know, not dying and Redfin being the new Ocean Master, you know, I like the fact that they kept Ocean Master alive. Where at the end of the story, you didn't really know whether or not Ocean Master would be a part of the ongoing story were this to go on. It, right. You know, again, had this gone to series or if they would have taken this to a series there could have been more done with you know redfin having to deal with problems with the different underwater tribes and ocean master having to come back and take the take the role or things like that the the father-son dynamic uh you know and you know who is the ruler and who will uh, you know have the right uh direction to take these take these people in you know is is always an interesting thing that they could mine for a bunch of stories i can see that but you know that's that's fine. I didn't have anything in the back matter. They kind of uh, talked about the character design and you know mm-hmm. uh, what they looked at, but uh, and how yeah, they're uh, they're all based off of um, actual fish, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah, and then fish kind of extrapolated from there, but yeah, fish with fish with boobs, fish with boobs. Yeah, I think we just so, found the episode title. All right, <laughs> uh, but yeah, I mean overall, <laughs> meh. Yeah, but next time I read it, I am going to keep in mind the Kirby wackiness and then see if that changes my opinion on on, on a complete read through. It di- it did for me. It it didn't make it you know a superior book to the level of you know the Adam or X Men or not X Men the Adam or Metal <laughs> Man. That'd be odd. Uh, but you know it it did improvement. But yeah, I'll have to agree. Overall, I was just it was a book. So. Yeah. There they, you go. They can't, they can't all be winners. Yeah, yeah. like I said, you can't always hit it out of the park. So this one was a decent enough read. All right. Well, next episode we'll be looking at uh, a much funner – more fun title, I guess, with The Joker by Carl Kessel and Matt Haley. So I hope you come back. Um, until then, though, be sure to keep writing in. Let us know your thoughts or leave comments at the website. Uh, the email address is in the end tag, but it's tangent at greatcrypton.com. But until next time, this is Michael Bradley and Sean Engel, and we will talk to you next time, I guess. It's Bye, everyone. Next, it's a lot of next times. Isn't it? Yeah, we'll put another one in there. Okay. Talk to you next time, folks.
just finished listening to Parallel Lines, the DC Comics Tangent Universe podcast. Hosted by me, Michael Bradley. And me, Sean Ingle. The show can be downloaded from a variety of places, most notably Michael's website, greatcrypton.com, where you can find show notes, cover images, and a section for leaving comments about the episodes. It can also be found on iTunes by searching for Parallel Lines. And if you happen to use iTunes, please take some time out to leave a review. Maybe even a five-star one. All reviews help more people to find out about the show. The show is also on Facebook, where you can like us and get updates when new shows are posted. Plus, images, plot elements, and general discussion about these books can be found there as well. Want to send feedback about the episode? Well, then you can email us at tangent at greatcrypton.com. All feedback is warmly welcomed, and we will definitely read your emails on the show. When Michael and I aren't doing shows about alternate DC Comics history, we're busy doing tons of other geeky stuff on the internet. For instance, Michael does a podcast about Superman and Batman team-ups, cleverly titled Superman and Batman. Plus, he hosts a blog about the Man of Steel's creators, Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster, called Siegel and Schuster Mythmakers, both of which you can find over at GreatCrypton.com. And Sean hosts a Green Lantern podcast focusing on Guy Gardner and Kyle Rayner, called Just One of the Guys. He's also a guest host on Walking Dead Wednesdays, a Walking Dead podcast, and Who True Freaks, a Doctor Who podcast. And all these shows can be found over at TwoTrueFreaks.com. Speaking of Two True Freaks, if you ever feel like making a purchase from Amazon.com, please use the link at TwoTrueFreaks.com. After clicking the link, any purchase you make at Amazon will shoot a percentage of money back to the Two True Freaks website. It won't cost you anything extra, but it really helps out a great bunch of podcasters. Thanks for downloading and listening, and come back next time for another episode of Parallel Lines, the DC Comics Tangent Universe podcast. Because in the Tangent Universe, you only know the names. Sorry, I gave you like, you know, half a ton of editing jobs. Oh, that's all right. Usually, you know, when I when I'm doing shows, usually the synopses are the only things that I really edit unless there's like big silence breaks during that. And I can just usually scan through that. But I think it works out okay. I I kept thinking of completely inappropriate jokes. (laughs) Well, to uh, Redfin and JJ's relationship. Oh yes, yeah. That does. Yeah, does it? Does it taste like tuna? Yes, I know. Under the sea. (laughs) Darling, it's better down where it's wetter. Oh, good lord! If this doesn't go in the outtakes, (laughs) I think I think it it needs to. Under the sea. Under the sea, darling, it's better down where it's wetter. Take it from me. Up on the shore, they work all day. Out in the sun, they slave away. While we've been boating full time, you floating under the sea. <laughs> Don't you hope the fish is happy as after the waves go. The fish on the land is happy. This